0: really don't. Uh, would you turn in your Bibles now to our primary reading this morning. Uh, this is from 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 16 through to 21. So 2 Peter Chapter 1, beginning of verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honour and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And when we heard this voice which came down from heaven, This is the word of God. Would you join me as we pray before studying this together? Lord God, as we come to study this part of your word, we pray that we might take note of the things that Peter tells us here. We pray that we might not lean on our own understanding to understand scripture, but just as scripture has been inspired by your Holy Spirit, that we might be granted understanding by your Holy Spirit. We pray that this might be true for each one of us this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning as we look at this part of Second Peter, we really do see God's glory spoken about by Peter. Now, as we begin to, to look at that and begin to see how that our glorious God has worked in our lives, as well as how a glorious God has revealed himself to us, uh, we're going to have three points. Firstly, we're looking at Christian experiences, secondly, relying on scripture, and thirdly, understanding scripture. So as we get into this today, Peter really does want us to see how glorious God is. And he does that at the start here by specifically mentioning something that he has seen. He talks about one of his own experiences. Now, as we consider experience, because Peter does talk about his own experience here, experience is one of those things that can be either really, really beneficial or a problem. Now, a reason I say it can be both beneficial and a problem is because Anna and I remember when Anna was just out of uni, applying for nursing positions, particularly when we moved interstate to Canberra. You could apply for positions, but do you have the experience? If you don't have experience, sometimes experience can be a really frustrating thing. Sometimes experience can be frustrating, not only if we don't have it, but sometimes we have experienced things that just make us feel worn out. Perhaps we feel like we have less energy in our lives because of the things we've gone through. If only we hadn't gone through that traumatic experience, we'd be so much better positioned now. I feel older, greyer, more tired because of that experience over there. However, on the other side of it, experience can be a really, really good thing. And for the Christian, as we've seen through those first 15 verses, we are to to keep growing. And the the more we experience, the more we can grow in Christ. There's a, a great spiritual and just general life wisdom that can be gained through experience. Once you have experience, it can be an awesome, awesome thing. It's this thing that can cut both ways. Again, I'm talking about experience because Peter himself talks about his experience. We see that in verses 16 through to 18 this morning. Peter there, as I I said earlier on in the service, is talking about something that happened back in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. What happened there, as we read, is the transfiguration of Christ. Jesus and his disciples... Had reached a town called Caesarea Philippi. We we'll read that at the end of Mark chapter 8. And when they reached that town, Jesus took uh, James and John and Peter, who some people have referred to as the inner circle among the, uh, the 12 apostles, and he took them up to the top of this mountain overlooking this town called Caesarea Philippi. Now, the reason I'm including the fact that Caesarea Philippi is there. Is because Jesus often did things that were very specific to the location to increase the point that was being made at the time. What you might not know about Caesarea Philippi is that it was a Roman town built to honour a Caesar as a God. That is the backdrop for Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. This town built to honour a normal man as a God. It's on top of a hill, a mountain overlooking this town that James, John and Peter go up with Jesus where this incredible event takes place. This town built as a tribute to a false god, as a backdrop to the revelation of the true God. Where Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. We see there majesty coming up, excellent glory referring to the, the voice of the Father speaking from heaven. These men were eyewitnesses to probably the, the greatest degree of holiness that has ever been seen other than what Moses saw on that mountain. His experience is something that these three apostles are eyewitnesses to. And not only do they see more of the majesty of Christ than anyone has ever seen before, this side of eternal glory. They also see Elijah and Moses appear there as well. well what we read in Mark chapter nine, verses two to thirteen, which Peter is referring to in verses sixteen to eighteen of chapter one of Second Peter, is an event we could read, but we have to read it in a way to understand the shock factor of this event. And we see the shock factor in how Peter himself responds in Mark chapter 9. Do you want me to build you a tabernacle or a hut or a house? Whatever translation we've got might say something like that. Do you want me to build each of you a shelter, Jesus and Elijah and Moses? I'll build you a shelter. And we see that he he reads it because he didn't really know what to say. It was just such a terrifying, amazing event to see. See, this mountain behind Caesarea Philippi, Jesus Christ was shown to be the true God. This experience was something incredibly special that each of those three men who saw it would have held on to for the rest of their lives. We see evidence of that in the way that Peter writes this letter here. Consider the others who saw it as well. They all faced different circumstances in their lives. James was was martyred for his faith not long after the death of Christ. John was going to live a long life, but a long life of exile on the island of Patmos. And Peter, who we mentioned quickly last week, has said that his own death is coming, a death where he was crucified upside down. Each of these men faced different circumstances, but you can imagine... Can imagine what a glorious comfort this would have been to each one of them. In each of the places that God was going to use them, whether for a long time or a short time, this experience of the one true God would bolster their faith. He says, awesome, amazing, shocking event. I don't think we can really describe the extent of it. Yeah, the US military. Like to use a tactical term called shock and awe. Shock and awe is when there is an attempt to use overwhelming force and all the noises accompanied with the overwhelming force, uh, force to completely disorient your opponent and leave them unable to really discern what's happening around them. They're proud of their shock and awe, but the US military's shock and awe has nothing on the shock and awe of the Mount of Transfiguration. This is real shock and awe. This was Peter's experience of Christ. This was something that gave Peter confidence to continue trusting in Christ because he had this experience of God. If we turn this passage back on ourselves and perhaps Peter's audience were doing this at the time, maybe we're left asking the question, What if we don't have that sort of revelation of Jesus in our life? Because we we don't. Our experiences aren't quite like this, are they? We have experience of the incredible things God does in our lives. But what this begins to lead us to is an understanding that maybe our experiences aren't enough. Our experiences alone are not enough to confirm our faith. Our experiences alone will not get us through the hard times. They will not allow us to stand against persecution and or false teachers, the things that Peter's audience were facing, the things that we face in various levels ourselves today. Now, we need to understand Peter isn't writing these things in verses 16 to 18 to elevate himself. He's not saying, I'm way up here and you guys are way down there. My experience makes me so much better as a follower of Christ than anyone else other than James and John. But that's not what Peter is saying here. We don't have that same type of revelation of Christ in our lives today. Hebrews chapter 1 1 and 2 begins to explain why that is the case. And we read there that long ago, and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, but has now spoken to us through Jesus. There is no further revelation we need from God because what we have in scriptures is all that we need to have faith in God, a faith that is immovable. Our experiences will be different from Peter's and we don't have this clearly mind-blowing experience that Peter had, we can still know that we are saved. We can still know through personal evidences in our life, the thing we looked at from uh, in Bible study on Wednesday night, uh, from the middle of uh, the second paragraph of chapter 2 in the Confession of Faith, we can know through the work that God does in our lives that he is alive and that he is At work, saving souls for His glory today. Because while it might not stack up, the fact is, the fact is that every single person who has faith in Jesus Christ has had an an encounter and an ongoing encounter where God has been active in our lives. You consider the disposition of our hearts when we become Christians, where our hearts are oriented as Christians. They can focus on God. We are no longer bound to sin, we are bound to God. We can rejoice in his goodness. And the place of our hearts is something that is so important in our relationship with God. It's spoken about a lot through both the Old and the New Testaments. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 17 towards the end of those verses there, we read that God commands his people to circumcise their hearts. Purity of our hearts is important. But even in the Old Testament, while they were making sacrifices, there was an understanding that that was something they could not do on their own. They could not do this procedure to themselves. And this is a spiritual procedure really being spoken about here. It's not a literal pull out your heart, cut part of it off and put it back in your chest. This is a spiritual thing being spoken about here. We can't do this on our own. Our ability to choose what we do in life, apart from the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, is only to choose sin. But when our hearts are made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, then we can choose to live lives pleasing to God. i we've seen over the last three sermons on, one, on, on 2 Peter what that looks like. That virtuous conduct, that growth in grace, continued knowledge, abounding of God, good fruits being born from that. When we read this in 2 Peter, don't think that you're a lesser Christian because we haven't had what Peter had. It might make us think, if we look over our lives, do we see experiences of God working in us and shaping us to produce holiness? And if we see evidences of that, if we are searching our hearts, which is really the prompting of the Holy Spirit, then we have experienced God's glory, his glorious work in reviving our souls. And it's an ongoing thing. We know that God has given to each one of us the Holy Spirit who never leaves us but does enable us to grow. Now, maybe, maybe that growth feels like it's slow. Maybe at times you feel like that growth is just painfully slow. As we look back over our lives, we can see improvement. Since the moment we called upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And virtuous growth that Peter has spent so much talking about so far in this letter. Those evidences of lives, that is evident in the lives of all those who are children of God, is not about our effort. It's about God doing something in our lives. God producing something in our lives. The commentator Thomas Schreiner says that Peter's flow of logic through this letter up to this point makes it clear that the call to virtuous growth is absolutely founded in God's saving work and should never be dismissed as something we achieve for ourselves. Peter, in verse 16, talks about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by that same power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that we know, just like Peter, that we do not follow cleverly devised myths or fables. In the original context would have been those, they're great stories. They're not religious. Those things about the Greeks and the the Romans, gods and demigods and those sorts of things. They can be entertaining, but people believe them as truth. They led people away from the truth. What we have, what we have in Christ is real, and there are genuine evidences of our glorious God who is active in our lives. We all experience that as Christians. Every single person who has faith in Christ has a mega encouraging, I'm sorry to use the word mega encouraging, it's not formal, but I can't say it. We have a mega encouraging experience of God's redemptive power work in our lives. We know his glory, we know his majesty, and we know what we are being called to in eternity. We should be encouraged by that. We should be encouraged by the Christian growth of the people around us and be thankful for those experiences we do have as Christians. But as we move into the second point, though, we see that we have to, above that, we have to rely on Scripture. Now, if you're looking for some verses that prove the inspiration of Scripture from Scripture, verses 19 to 21 are some of those classic verses. They make it so clear what the source of Scripture is. It's not people making it up. It's not people interpreting it on their own. This is God's word, God's spoken word to us. And it's on scripture that we have to be relying on. And as good as experience can be, and as amazing as our Christian experience always should be, I really do appreciate why Peter is going where he is in these verses 19 through to 21. And it's also reflected in 1 Peter chapter 1 as well. And that is, while experience is good, there is a place for it. Have you ever had someone tell you that your experience might not mean quite as much as you think it does? I've had someone tell that to me about different things and I get my hackles up. I don't like it. Who are you to tell me what my experiences mean to me. You are outside of those experiences. You have no right to tell me that my experiences mean less than I make them out to mean. Why would you offend me like that? I will be the one to determine the value of my own experiences. Thank you very much. I might not always say the thank you very much part at the end. That might be a bit too polite at times. We get hostile. We don't like it. And we get like that because our experiences are ours. And while God can fully comprehend every single experience we go through, other than God, we are the next best people to know the extent of good, bad, or indifference attached to each and every one of our experiences. But verse 19 begins to challenge that a little bit. I think this verse is huge in taking away our, our often prideful reliance on our experience of I did this and it was good. I did that and it was good. I did that and it wasn't so good, so I learned how to do the right thing because of that. Verse 19 takes the focus away from us and takes our focus onto God. And remember, verses 16 to 18, Peter tells his audience that he personally saw the transfigured Christ. He saw that. Now, as a Christian, I can't imagine a greater thing to witness. If you go, what do you rank your experiences you ever heard of? That's got to be up there near the top. That is an ultimate Christian experience. So much of the glory of Christ revealed. Something he could turn his mind back to for the rest of his life. But even while he has had that ultimate Christian experience, he says there's something more valuable. He says there is something even more dependable against falsehoods than what we go through. It's not dismissing what we go through, but there is something more dependable, more reliable. Verse 19, he brings our minds to the prophetic word which has been more fully confirmed, presumably because of what Christ did. Uh, Douglas Moo's commentary is helpful on this. He begins to talk about the need we have to actually understand what the prophetic word that Peter's talking about here is. There are, of course, as with most things, various views on what it could be. Uh, Some people suggest that the uh, prophetic word is only those future promises to come, things that haven't yet happened yet, because they're taking it as being... Prophetic from the time that Peter writes, looking forward from the time that Peter writes. But Peter does say that this prophetic word has been more fully confirmed after immediately having spoken about Christ. The prophetic word being spoken about here, we could, we could summarize it as every single written or spoken oracle in scripture concerning both the coming of Christ to dwell incarnate among fallen men, as he did, as well as all of the forward looking promises, prophecies regarding Christ's return on the day of judgment. Now, I think it's that second one, that more full version that Peter is actually referring to. And again, there's a lot of similarity between this first chapter of 1 Peter and, and also 2 Peter, which we're looking at now. And in 1 Peter, it seems to be referring that way too. This is the prophetic word that's been more fully confirmed because of Christ. That word we know is proven to be trustworthy because Jesus has. He did fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament writings regarding his coming. Now, some of you like maths. I joke that maths is the reason I'm in ministry. I'm not a maths guy. If you ever look up the probability of Jesus fulfilling of one person, who is Christ, of course, who did do it, but the probability of one person fulfilling the prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the coming Messiah, the size of the odds stacked against that happening, I can't even say how big it is. It's incredible. It's a huge, huge number. You take it down to fulfilling 10 prophecies regarding the coming Messiah. And again, the odds are just so enormously stacked against anyone being able to do all of it. Christ fulfilled over 120. 120. Now, if Christ did that, if there is confidence given because of what he did fulfilling those prophecies, then it goes to stand that there is reliability concerning those future prophecies yet to be fulfilled too. Now, the future stuff we we really get into in chapter 3 of 2 Peter. Peter's beginning to set the scene for it here. We we, we won't take the wind out of our sails when we look at that later chapter. We'll save that for when we actually get to it. So stay tuned for that. For what we have here, Peter is elevating the value of this prophetic word. He is elevating the value of scripture. And just like those MasterCard's I would say, it is priceless. But in a way that even those MasterCard advertisers can't understand the word priceless to be. We can't describe how amazing it is. It is of even more worth than Peter's own experience of witnessing the transfiguration. The words of the Old Testament and the words of the New Testament as well must have a greater significance on our life than anything that we go through. Experiences are not bad. Experiences, as we again read in the Confession of Faith, chapter 18, point, uh, paragraph 2, are a good thing that can confirm the promises of God to us. But they are not what we rely on. We have to rely on Scripture. We have to rely on the revealed word of God. Peter says in verse 19, we should pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place. Peter is writing to Christians who were facing persecution, who had false teachers who were threatening to take them away from the light and further and further into darkness, as we know from Christ's parables. It's like the blind leading the blind in the eternal destination of that is hell. There is no other light in the darkness than God's word. There is nothing else to, to guide us on this life we live than God's word. And just to make that point even further... Consider your recollection of experiences. Do you always remember things the same way? Just in the kids' talk, looking at two football games, I can remember those two football games very differently. Psychologists suggest that how well things are going for us at the moment we stop to think back on what we've lived through will shape a recollection of that experience. If things are going good for us now and we look back at an event that happened in our past it was bad, we'll remember it as being better than it was. If things are going bad for us now and we look back at something that happened in our past, we'll remember it as being worse than it actually was. It seems to be, generally speaking, how the human mind works. Our experiences simply aren't as concrete as we'd like them to be. But what hasn't changed is God's word. What will not change is God's word. Peter's writing to people who are either about to face or are facing storms of persecution and false teachings. Things that we will be facing too. Things that we are facing too. We need something concrete to rely on and that is God's word. It is unchanging. It is constant. It will always remain the same. And while we can be thankful for our experiences, again, we should not depend on them. We must depend on God's Word. In God's Word, we see this beautiful, incredible unfolding story of redemptive history. A story that will continue until Christ comes again. And this is proven as a trustworthy thing to hope in because of what Christ did in fulfilling those prophecies in the Old Testament. We have confidence that those ones yet fulfilled will be fulfilled. We must rely on scripture. And remember that our experience does not shape scripture, but scripture will shape our experiences. It is vital for the Christian. Now it's easy to say though, rely on scripture and perhaps leave it there, and then we go, well, what does that mean? We need to know how to understand Scripture. We have to know how to understand Scripture. And as we look at verses 20 and 21 regarding the understanding and the application of Scripture in our life, we have to consider the, the, the fullness and the, the risks if we don't understand Scripture properly, as well as the blessings of understanding Scripture properly. As a church, we subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. In that first chapter, it's all about Holy Scripture. And point nine of that chapter uh, says the following, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. God's Word interprets God's Word. Now, it continues on a little bit from there, outlining that if there's questions we have about the Bible, We have been blessed with people who know the Bible. Talk to those people, but check what they say against the Bible itself. We have to rely on Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. If we don't, we are left with all sorts of weird and wonderful ideas, aren't we? I'm not sure if any of you have heard of uh, an American fellow called uh, John Haggy. I hadn't heard of him for a number of years, uh, since about 2014. He popped up recently on something I, uh, I heard uh, in the last few weeks. But in 2014, he wrote a book about end times prophecy, about the four blood moons. Uh, these are things that are referenced in a prophecy that Joel, in the book of Joel in chapter 2, verse 31. Now, according to, to John Hagee, and he wrote this before 2014, by the way, In 2014, the second half of 2014, following this fourth prophesied blood moon, Russia was going to launch a military invasion of the Middle East. The day after this happened, billions, billions, not millions, billions with a B were going to die. We're a little bit past that, aren't we? Any of you remember that happening? I don't. We're in two thousand twenty-one. What went wrong? Is Joel's prophecy, and if part of Scripture isn't correct, all the Scripture should be questioned too. Is a prophecy in Joel chapter two verse thirty-one broken? Is God's word broken? Can we actually rely on God's word? All went wrong was not God's word. What went wrong was Hagee's interpretation of it. He used information from NASA, from astronomers, from political sciences, geopolitical events that had happened with Russia's past involvement in the Middle East, and he applied that to scripture rather than letting scripture speak for itself. Now, we might look at that and be tempted to, to laugh it off you know what's sad? This is a man who continues in ministry. This is a man who has never issued an apology for leading so many people astray. People selling houses, people giving money to him from the sale of their houses, giving up their livelihood because the end was about to happen. He has never issued an apology. He has never offered to refund people the money they spent on these books, even though they are proven woefully wrong. He caused incredible panic in some circles. That alone gives us cause to take this seriously. You know what the biggest repercussion of that event was? The contempt brought on God's name. Well-known publications like The Guardian from early 2015 joked, referencing John Hagee, that the world had dodged an apocalypse-sized bullet. That does not promote the glory of God, the righteousness of God, the holy of God, the perfection of God, the iner- inerrancy of Scripture. It takes away how people see God. Now, that's an extreme example. But this is what we go down. This is a path we begin to go down when we use human wisdom, human knowledge and human reasoning to interpret Scripture. The consequences can be huge. Verse 21 No prophecy ever came from man. And before that, in verse 20, no prophecy comes from someone's interpretation. So, how do we understand God's word? We understand God's word by the means by which it was given, the Holy Spirit. Holy men spoke, moved by the Holy Spirit. By the power and the person who revealed God's word to us, we can understand his word. Not by our clueiness, not by our experience, not by our keeping up with the news of events in the Middle East. None of those things. By turning to pages of scripture... And asking God for wisdom and understanding, that is how we understand God's word. And it's not an easy thing to do this. And sometimes we still have a lot we need to work out and maybe a lot of questions that we still have. Whether something is complicated or whether something is script- is simple, we need to ask God for wisdom. James 1 says that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of the Father. See, if we want to understand Scripture so that we can rely on Scripture and better enjoy the experiences that we have as Christians, we have to rely on God for the wisdom that he might bless us with. Because without that, his word will not fully penetrate our lives. We should pray, as we do. We should keep praying that by the power of his word and the the Holy Spirit at work in us, that we might be growing in the Lord. That every day that we will see scriptures more clearly, that every day through seeing scripture more clearly by God's grace, we might better see God's glory and better be equipped to serve him faithfully. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would be with each one of us as we go from here. We pray that we would truly devote ourselves to the study of your word. We know this is your word. We know that your word alone contains truth. Where else would we go for these words? We have nowhere else to go. So help us to not neglect these things and help us to trust in you for understanding rather than upon ourselves. We ask this in Christ's name.